The great society rests on abundance and liberty for all. It demands an end to poverty and racial injustice, to which we're totally committed in our time. Many of you will live to see the day, perhaps 50 years from now, when there will be 400 million Americans, four-fifths of them in urban areas. In the remainder of this century, urban population will double. City land will double. And we will have to build homes and highways and facilities equal to all those built since this country was first settled. So in the next 40 years, we must rebuild the entire urban United States. The catalog of ills is long. There is the decay of the centers and the despoiling of the suburbs. There's not enough housing for our people or transportation for our traffic. Open land is vanishing and old landmarks are violated. Worst of all, expansion is eroding these precious and time-honored values of community with neighbors and community, communion with nature. The loss of these values breeds loneliness and boredom and indifference. And our society will never be great until our cities are great. So let us from this moment begin our work so that in the future men will look back and say, it was then, after a long and weary way, that man turned the exploits of his genius to the full enrichment of his life. Thank you. Goodbye. Hello, and welcome to Taking the Bay on BFF.fm. Today in our program, we'll introduce our show, who we are, some basics of city planning and urban theory, and a few important questions we should all be asking. Explore with us the struggle of life in the Bay and how we can plan a better future. I'm Sean Pounder. And I'm Nick Fish. And we also have Ben Buzikowski with us, who has been working on the show. He's currently not here. He's applying for a job in Encinitas, I believe. Is that right? Today's topic is going to focus on a little bit of the history of urban planning. Uh, these, these are more so rooted in the goals of the show and don't necessarily reflect the whole show structure. Would you say, Sean, that we're going to focus too much on history or are we going to focus more on regional planning? I think more of the goal of this show is going to discuss really kind of the policies that we see currently being discussed, talked about, and planned throughout the Bay Area, really, not just in San Francisco, but like the show says, all over the Bay. Cool. So with that said, we're going to talk a little bit about our backgrounds. Uh, we all went to San Francisco State 
we studied urban studies and planning. We're still currently in urban studies and planning. Uh, ben and I just graduated, and Sean is wrapping up his last semester with his thesis, as well as a few other classes, which is really exciting. With that said, we have some experience working for the city of San Francisco. We have some experience working for the mayor's office of housing. Uh, ben is currently working for the city still, and these all influence our perspective and how we see the Bay Area as urban planners. We see the Bay Area as urban development that reflects the needs of communities. Ben had a really cool description of it. He said, it is a constant march of meeting the material needs of people. How do you feel about that, Sean? I mean, it's, it's a really economic way of seeing how cities are built and how we discuss and deal with policy and, and planning. <laughs> um, what I think that might leave out is kind of the more abstract idea of what urban planning is. And urban, I mean, urban planning includes everything beyond just the material. Um, it includes the the intellectual. I mean, might even say the ethereal. Um, <laughs> it's it it includes just the very way that you even see for yourself, or how all of us collectively see how we all function together in a city, and how we can make that work better and meet more of what we think that we need, both materially, intellectually, artistically, culturally, abstractly. Um, I think I think Ben hits it on the nose and, and gets to where urban planning, I think, really goes today. Uh, it really focuses on that economic picture, that jobs are at the forefront, that um, the ability for a city, a district, a neighborhood to be productive, to meet the needs of its residents and, for, and to meet the needs of anybody who passes into that city, into that neighborhood, into that district. Um, I yeah. think that's where it comes in, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because it kind of leads me to what we were talking about a few days ago when we were talking about the two different parallel uh, well, the simultane simultaneous parallels in cities or in city planning or city theory, urban theory. Um, one of them was the more Lefebian ideological mm -hmm. understanding, understanding of a city, which is the people's right to the city. People shape the city, and what it becomes is reflected based on their needs, their cultural values. And then there's the Robert Moses side of things. Do you want to share a little bit about you know the juxtaposing uh, you know, you have the physical aspects that just juxtapose with cities, and then you have, you know, the theoretical aspects that differ. So, I mean, we a, a lot in planning and uh, urban planning and policy specifically, uh, we tend to refer a lot to a particular divide. I mean, I think this divide has even been codified into an opera, a literal cultural opera that's been performed mm -hmm. <laughs> um, of talking about, these two people named uh, Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. They're well-known figures in the field. Um, they come out of New York and are part of, out of this particular 
situation that began to happen um, in the mid 20th century, where inner city revitalization and industrialization began to happen, and uh, highways began to be introduced, and highways through cities and neighborhoods began to be introduced. And when we're talking about New York and we're talking about Manhattan, it's a very concentrated place, as, as any city is. And so Robert Moses thought that the city should, should entirely serve the economic needs of the residents both in and around the city and with the burgeoning highway system that uh, it should be structurally efficient, that people should be able to get from A to B in the fastest and most efficient way possible, and that they should be able to do that with ease that that was the city's purpose and function as a governmental body, as a bureaucracy. That was the main purpose. And then through that whole process, he began to cut up Manhattan. And when he came to Greenwich Village, uh, a woman named Jane Jacobs created kind of this oppositional movement. And this is the narrative that informs this, this divide, this kind of dialectical opposition where Robert Moses represents this top-down, very bureaucratic overseer who had a very particular vision of this kind of mechanical and efficient city that's going to serve people's needs, the needs specifically not necessarily all people, um, but the needs of people that he thought mattered basically anybody who could create economic gain for New York um, coming out of the suburbs and into the inner city and creating that value. And Jane Jacobs initiated this opposition and saw the value that already existed there, the, the cultural value, the economic value that already existed within neighborhoods and kind of started the the cascading urban grassroots movement of opposition to this kind of idea that there should be re like this regional economic and mechanical industrial efficiency. So there's this really like top down versus bottom up mentality that's really been a push and pull ever since. You know what I think is really interesting that that narrative speaks volumes, not only about uh, the, the negative effects of top-down bureaucracy on communities of color, on low-income communities. We can see so many parallels in the Bay Area, which is, you know, a huge influence on the name of this show, Taking the Bay, where uh, grassroots, we're more, we're more or less just kids. We're, we're people that have been here for, uh, you know, just a speck uh, of the, in the history of the Bay Area, but we have these material needs that aren't coming about. And if you look at the history of the Bay Area, can, can you find very many parallels in San Francisco or in Oakland where, you know, communities didn't have that grassroots revolution? And can you think of maybe a reason why that didn't happen? This is kind of off script. I'm just curious because Sean made some really good points. Um, I can think of one uh, specifically and in particular at least in San Francisco, um, and I can think of others that have happened 
um, where I'm from. I'm from the Bay, but I'm I'm from the Peninsula and I'm from the East Bay. I've lived all over. And but this particular narrative is something that's very, I think, represents and tells this kind of story is the one of the Fillmore, um, where this kind of action didn't happen. And I'm not necessarily. I'm not, I don't know if I'm really the person so well well enough versed in this history that I would be able to give a fuller accounting, but the general strokes of of how it went down essentially is that the Fillmore was a predominantly black community that was economically inclusive of black people, was built for in all aspects for black people, though, I mean, not built for because it's no community has almost ever been built for black people. It was um, built by black people. It's, it was built it was by black. It was built by black people. Yeah. And that community was through different policies pushed all the way from the federal level down to the city. It's called urban renewal happened during the sixties and seventies and even into the eighties. And one particular uh, mayor of San Francisco pushed the urban renewal policy, Justin Herman, and the Fillmore um, was bulldozed, essentially. An entire community, an entire culture was removed from the city without the ability for input from people that were from there. It's really incredible looking back understanding how much of an instrumental role the federal government played in uh, the privatization or the um, reallocation of land and resources uh, from communities of color. Uh, but it, when you look back at the history of planning and you look at you know Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, you do see that the top-down planning method or top-down bureaucracy tended to favor white communities in a you know broadly listing things off like redlining or you know just the the function of the FHA loans uh after you know mid-century post-war America's economy started booming most of the people that felt these benefits were white communities it's crazy because you look at you know, the, the early and mid-1960s, and you see LBJ's war on poverty, and you see so many, you know, progressive, by even today's standards, social welfare programs that were aimed to alleviate you know, the, the poverty and the slums that existed in inner cities. These are the types of things that we're going to talk about that still exist, and we're going to, you know, review some of the history of this with the intention of coming up with new innovative ideas or, you know, bringing up ideas that are currently implemented across the country that are working well because we haven't gotten to a place where the federal government has established a sustainable program for people's and people that need it. And unfortunately for a lot of these groups in these communities, it's too late because their neighborhoods are physically demolished or they've been displaced due to gentrification or their infrastructure hasn't been maintained, and you have places like Detroit that are ghost towns. So when you consider Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, it's really important to understand that Jane Jacobs represents a voice 
a cry for help and a cry to be heard and a cry for revolution. And on that note, we'll take a quick musical break and we'll be back to talk a little bit more. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we were talking about redevelopment and the fact that it's not it, in any way was it in San Francisco at the time when the Fillmore was bulldozed. That was not a unique experience for that community. I'd say that it it was kind of the same regardless of whether it was in San Francisco or New York. Almost mm-hmm. in every community, 
when we were talking about urban renewal and redevelopment, um, I can't think of off the top of my head any example that I've ever really been given that paints that particular policy or program positively, that it affected the communities which it was aimed at, disenfranchised communities, communities of color, low-income communities. Um, I think almost exclusively the program was targeted towards inner cities, and those are almost all predominantly communities of color. So a little bit about, we won't get too into this, but the logistics maybe, of redevelopment. Maybe, maybe in a later show. Yeah, and maybe in a later show, but more or less the, the basic idea of redevelopment was a particular area of a city. This redevelopment agencies were a part of cities uh, in California, uh, which is what we're talking about, all over the, the state in the 70s. I think in the late 70s is when they stopped. Or no, it was in 2008. But the Fillmore was in around the 70s. Uh, redevelopment agencies would acquire land that was considered blighted. And blighted land was more or less uh, low-income communities, predominantly communities of color, communities that had no resources, no material needs that were being met. And instead of the city actually acquiring and meeting those needs, uh, what they would do is they would take the land using eminent domain, their right to take the land, and they would sell that to a private developer. And once that land was sold to a private developer, it could be sold for a dollar, could be sold for market rate. It didn't really matter. The goal was to eliminate the blight. And the actual practical reality was those low-income communities of color were forced out and new white communities would come in. I think, I think a really, off the top of my head, I think a good way to, to think about blight is that at that time, blight was black that blight was black people. It was synonymous. It was definitely. totally and completely synonymous. And that it was, I mean, there's a huge racist and racial overtones to the whole, to the whole thing. Um, and, and how that narrative continues through to, to today that, that people of color and, and black people can't take care of their own communities and that somebody has to come in as, some savior to come and bring funding and and new amenities to some neighborhood, which is essentially gentrification. So understanding this conflict, uh, the, the conflict that existed 40 years ago in San Francisco, even though there aren't redevelopment agencies anymore, uh, the abolition of those social injustices and exclusionary planning practices and techniques doesn't necessarily mean that it's gone away completely. And that's ultimately the goal of this show. Even though there are racist policies that have existed in the past, we're trying to uncover and talk about and create solutions for or inspire solutions for those same exclusionary techniques that are being practiced today. Uh, so I think, Nick, after we did that kind of, that kind of lead in, right, that, that little intro of where I think specifically our education has kind of led us, in a very critical way of understanding how cities and urban policy have been, have been implemented historically, but also continue to be implemented and studied and, and being rolled out today. Um, I think we should maybe talk about what a city even is. Because, I mean, 
we've been talking about urban planning, but what is what is the urban? Definitely, definitely. Uh, what is the urban? I mean, most people might believe the urban is merely just the city, but the city of San Francisco and county of San Francisco are one thing, and the whole city is more or less urban. But when you talk about somewhere like Oakland, you have downtown Oakland, and then you have West Oakland, and they're two completely different urban environments. And growing up on the peninsula, would you describe San Mateo as being urban in any way? Uh, I think this is a conflict that came up with a lot of my classes uh, because most of, coming from the peninsula and going to SF State uh, and having almost all of the classes and material be about San Francisco proper and not the San Francisco Bay Area, where I came from was always described as the suburbs. Um, I mean, even even in even the even West Portal and and Ingleside and the and the Sunset were described as as suburbs. But when I when I think of suburbs, and this is probably my own bias, um, coming where I'm from, the suburbs are wide swaths of tract homes where you have to you have to drive like 10, 15 minutes, twenty minutes to get even to a grocery store. Um, and I think my thinking changed a lot because of these classes. Um, that this has really been an evolution about describing what is and what is not urban. I see where I'm from as urban because it's so compact and it's so it it's so geographically bound here in the Bay Area that, you know, I can I can drive from one side of San Mateo where I'm from to basically the other edge of San Mateo in in ten, fifteen minutes or less. But when you're talking about somewhere like Danville or Livermore, or somewhere in the valley. To me, that's where I think suburbs are. But I still think, in total, suburbs are part of the urban. It's it's in the name itself. Yeah, I think that that brings up an interesting point. Um, this is probably a good time to share that I'm from Sacramento. Uh, <laughs> not that I have any real connection to politics. Uh, I also grew up in the suburbs. Uh, and with that said, the greater Sacramento area is some. 3 million people now in the city, the urban city center of Sacramento itself, uh, 500,000, 450,000 or 500,000. So when we think of urban, it's probably less so that we think of the physical central business district or yeah. CBD and more so that we think of the, the regional relationship of different urban spaces, despite how densely packed they are or how, how connected they are to transportation. Um, we start to think about an urban network of relationships. You know, anywhere on the peninsula is so dependent on Caltrain to get up to San Francisco. That is, in, in my opinion, that becomes a very urban place because it has a very specific uh, and intimate relationship with the city center nearby. I think one of the ironies and what's kind of funny about way in which specifically we had to study and how the federal government and other governments study the Bay Area is that they don't define the Bay Area by San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> they define the Bay Area by San Jose uh, because San Jose is the largest city. I'm, I'm always corrected with that. I'm pretty new to the Bay Area, about two years, but yeah. <laughs> That's something that I constantly forget. Uh, San, I mean, San Francisco is, is relatively small. The this, The... The population of the city is, I think, on it on the the home population of the city, is somewhere hovering around five hundred thousand. 
but the population of the entire nine county Bay Area is nine is nine million, and one million of that is in San Jose, proper the city of, the city of San Jose, which is mm-hmm. which is crazy because you think of San Francisco as the most urban part of the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland, these two connect these two very very connected, very old parts of the Bay Area, but that San Jose is is the one that's one of the largest by area and largest by population which mm. is just like it just yeah the the urban the definition of urban is kind of tossed on its head at that point i mean san francisco has some 18,000 18,000 people per square mile making it the second most dense city in the country but it's not being defined in our region as the largest or most significant city is kind of mind blowing but at the same time, what we're trying to say is urban isn't defined at a city scale. It's, a, it's defined at a regional scale, which is what's inspiring this, this radio show to talk about regional issues and issues that may be passed in one place, like San Francisco or Millbrae or wherever, and may affect other communities across the region. Yeah, um talking about the specific policies i mean growing up i never really thought of san francisco as as really anything until somebody else told me that it was that somebody else told me that san francisco was the most important that san francisco was was the bay area um but having lived in the in the east bay and really on the edge of silicon valley i mean those those have their own kind of points of real importance. Um, I mean, Silicon Valley and its power, I think, rivals anything that San, that San Francisco as a, as a cultural identity, as a cultural icon can, can put out. Um, and I think this kind of, this line of questioning, I think this is part of, part of where we wanted to lead this discussion is uh, who are the people who live in the urban SF Urban SF, like urban Bay Area, like, I mean, you can't try and drive down 101 from San Francisco. I mean, the keen eye can definitely tell, but where San Francisco ends and the rest of the peninsula begins, or when you drive up a 80 in the East Bay, where one city ends and the next city begins without seeing that those tiny, tiny, tiny little green signs yeah. on the side of the road that tell you that you're in a new city. I mean, we're all a part of this one urban fabric. And I, I, I really, it's, it's hard to like pinpoint who lives here and who the urban are. It's almost, I feel like we're almost talking about LA right now, (laughs) which is so ironic because I lived in Orange County for a few years and I would commute to LA and I absolutely fucking hated it. I'd take eight or nine freeways to get to work (laughs) in Pasadena and I just craved public transportation. And now we're in in a place in the Bay Area, a time in history where it can take hours to get over the bridge. And that's just going from one city to another. It's gotten to the point where we've got such uh, shifting flows of people from one end of the bay to the other that we're no longer bound by our municipal lines in the sand. We're dependent on each other. 
And there are a number of reasons for that. Affordability crisis is one. Uh, innovations, some might say, in transportation, like Uber and Lyft, which we will potentially talk about later in this show. Uh, there are different changes that are happening that are affecting what is urban SF and everybody who lives there. Because you have people that are commuting or that have historically commuted by ferry from Vallejo to San Francisco for work in the financial district. And I don't think anybody in Vallejo would consider themselves in an urban area. I mean, I, I definitely don't consider Vallejo an urban area. Uh, I, I think I agree um, because I think, I think this whole line of questioning um, really lines up with, with an, identi- an identity crisis that I think the Bay Area might be having a little bit of because we have such a flow of new people coming in, which is a whole loaded discussion about the benefits and drawbacks of new people coming into the Bay Area with the housing crises and things like that. But that people, these new people are here. These new people see themselves as a part of the new Bay, as a part of the new urban fabric, the new urban SF. And what does that change about who we are? I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of nostalgia about the bygone days that somehow we were all very free loving and very free and very open and very, we were all very different until everything changed. Um, which might be true. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm 26. I'm not old enough to to say that I've lived through all huge amounts of social movements um, in the Bay Area uh, that have happened since the 60s uh, and the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, but really, the Bay Area is changing and who the Bay Area is is changing. And being able to sit back and look and understand that, I think, is something that's important and something I think we'll probably continue to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And with that said, uh, Sean, I I know what you're going to say to this, but do you think that given these changes in the Bay Area, that there are new needs that need to be addressed and new bureaucratic methods that need to do that, that that need to be utilized to do that? We are no longer, you know, an autonomous city of San Francisco or of Oakland. We're a region. Or Brisbane. Or Brisbane which needs to make some housing, for Christ's sake, <laughs> a little bit. But what, what do you think about organizations like ABAG? I mean, as urban planners, ABAG, Association of Bay Area Governments, is you know, a progressive tool. But what, what do you think they need to be more successful? How do you think they need to become successful? Wow, Nick. In a nutshell, in a nutshell, we'll talk in a about nutshell, that. Nick. <laughs> in a nutshell, you really put me on the spot with this. Uh, we can cut he's, it out. He's, he's he's putting me on he's put me on blast on on this particular uh, opinion that I have about the Bay Area. Um, that yes, the Association of Bay Area Governments is essentially uh, not only them but also M- uh, MTC Metropolitan Transportation Commission, um, which are merging these two. If you've never heard of them. Hopefully, this is this is just a stepping stone uh, that these two organizations um, kind of give direction to the Bay. They don't necessarily govern the Bay. They put out reports. 
um, however toothless they may be, ABAG and MTC don't have the power to to insist on any, on any policy changes at the local level, at the city level. I mean, we're talking about 101 different jurisdictions across the nine counties. Um, and they're all, they all have different priorities, different ideas about what they, and, and this is totally valid, ideas about what their communities should be or want to be. But th- even those values and those ideas are influenced by who has power in those limited communities, right? Yeah. And so what I think, and I'll probably discuss this at a at greater length some other time, uh, is that w- as these changes happen regionally, uh, the kinds of organizations like ABAG and MTC need to be integrated beyond just policy recommendations integrated past just saying this is what we think that we should do but then that we never do um that we should really be able to collectively as an entire bay talk to each other and talk about and discuss and begin to implement the changes that will benefit us all um everyone from 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 danville to to santa clara to San, San Rafael. I mean, we all are a part of a bay. We all commute to each other's towns, to each other's cities. We cross. We know each other. We know the names of each other's cities, and yet we are almost on separate, on different sides of the planet. And it's, I don't know. It's just. I think that's it's really insightful because it it begs the question of it kind of brings us back a step and it begs the question, what is even the purpose of urban planners? If we're not going to try and create some template for everyone to live in, Mm. we have to take a step back and understand and preserve diversity, diversity in physical space and diversity in demographic. And that we have, we have parts of San Francisco that are under attack that are predominantly Hispanic or predominantly, you know, of different Asian heritage. And they're under attack based on grounds of gentrification or displacement um, from several economic forces. And we also have developments that are attacking our green spaces, that are attacking our historic monuments or just places of value that have been around long enough to, to mean something to people in general. And those are worth preserving. It's not worth making the Bay Area the most densely packed place. It's not worth turning the Bay Area into Manhattan because that's not what the true need is. The true need is identifying on a community by community basis and listening to those communities and meeting those needs. And I think that's something that people forget when they think about urban planners because there's talk of NIMBY and there's talk of YIMBY, but there's no real talk of just community discourse because there's no real bad guys unless you want to point the fingers at, you know, somebody that's if you want to point the finger at a big bad developer then you can do that, but I like to think of everybody in your community as being a good person with valid opinions and valid points that should not be overlooked. And I think urban planners have that opportunity to take a step back and listen to everyone's voice to make the most informed decision. Uh 
And these organizations or this organization, is it going to be consolidated under ABAG or is it going to be? Uh, MTC and ABAG are going to merge into one kind of organization. MTC is, to give it a very broad stroke overview, is that it governs the inter-county and inner-city modes of transportation. So are they going to be identifying as ABAG or? As yet to be determined. Yet to be determined. (laughs) Our um, hope, our hope is that this new organization is able to recognize those needs at at a very grand scale, because it's it's gotten extremely hard for Ed Lee to even do this. I don't know, you know, if that would change under somebody else's if there was another mayor. But all I'd know is it's not currently working, and we need more oversight and we need more you know political activism as well as grassroots activism. I think, I mean, it's a the goal of that urban planners should try and op- try and open dialogue and open their perspective, is something that I I support. But being in the field and having worked for cities before, um, the horizon of where urban planners now see, and their bosses and the political figures that govern those cities, is their own jurisdictions. Oakland doesn't care about what San Leandro is doing. Uh, South San Francisco doesn't care what Daly City is doing because they're not, they're not a part of each other. They're not, they're not involved in each other's decision making. Like I, I, if you were a South San Francisco resident, you can't go to Daly City and go to a city council meeting and say, you're blocking this, this housing development and that's going to increase rents in my city. Yeah, you can't you can't do that. It's not it's it's not something that that happens across the bay, and um, I think it is a, the goal, a lofty goal. I think shared with us, and maybe where we see things are going. But urban planners right now, I mean, I mean possibly outside outside their their jobs, in their job role specifically, they might think like us. But their job is to work for their city, their jurisdiction, and to benefit only their city and only their jurisdiction. They have no, in, there's no incentive. There's no, there's no course of action that directs any city official, any bureaucrat to think of anybody else. Pretty morbid, <laughs> but it's true. You know, I mean, the, we are, we've become extremely decentralized. I, I think it's worth noting that there has been good legislation in the past 10, 15 years with Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and we'll wrap up soon, by the way, but uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, in 2008, I think it was AB 275, Assembly Bill 275, he passed, which you know, increased overall. It just incentivized uh, high density development near transportation. And when you have state legislation that creates an umbrella over all cities with different needs, then you tend to see better smart development or just more smart development that better suits a more sustainable future and socially equitable future for everyone. That's when we start to see real changes happen between you know, Marin County and San Francisco, uh, which is also a part of you know, the show. We want to talk about state legislations and, and things that we can do to really influence things at a local level. Just a shame shout to Marin County. 
uh, <laughs> um, that the current budget, as it stands, exempts Marin County oh, from <laughs> from the same housing standards of development, the number of housing developments, and what kind of developments that the state will fund um, or ask for. Um, Marin County is exempt by a specific decree, by, by a specific amendment line items into the fiscal budget for this year. Um, and no other county in the Bay Area has that. Not one. How convenient. Yes. Um, with that said, uh, this, this is our first episode, so I want to try and end us on a good note. And I think Sean's done a really good job of... Let's get out of the morbid. <laughs> opening up about his opinions and keeping things nice and happy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so a lot of the things that we talked about today... Uh, a little bit of the history of urban planning, some of the failures of urban planning in our region uh, inspire us to see a better and brighter Bay Area for all of us, people that don't live here yet, people that have been living here their entire lives, and people that need to move here for work. Uh, we want to see everybody's lives improved. Um, so with that said, I, I want to set the stage for some other topics that we're going to talk about, which include you know some housing issues that are currently going on in the Bay Area. Uh, ben has been doing a, a lot of research on land prices and the effects of, you know, Ellis Acting and, you know, Airbnb, as well as, you know, any rent control legislation that's going through soon, which there definitely is, which can change a lot about how cities deal with these issues, um, as well as a little bit more on Sean's thesis, which is the regional issue of government in the Bay Area, which, you know, I can let him talk a little bit about if he wants, but. The whole concept, the whole idea, it's a, cent it's a century old, almost, almost the, like to the date, to the year, uh, the, the idea of a greater Bay Area, greater, uh, greater San Francisco um, that, that models and, and kind of follows the same kind of jurisdictions and policies that New York, New York City and, and metropolitan area of New York follow um, that include everyone that lives within the metropolitan region and their ability to have input, uh, which has been an argument that's been going on for uh, about 100 years now in the Bay Area. So we'll definitely talk about that. I mean, I'm definitely writing about it. I'm definitely researching about it. So cool. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm Sure, we, we have a lot more to talk about, and I hope we didn't leave anybody in the dust. But, uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. I'm Nick Fish, and I'm Sean Bounder. And we look forward to having Ben with us next month for another episode of Taking the Bay.